as I was thinking about this morning and about what I want to challenge you with, I wanted to attempt to be as practical as I possibly could be. And that practicality involves the concept of knowing Scripture. Knowing Scripture. And your duty and your desire to know Scripture in a profound and enlightening way. As I thought about this driving yesterday with my son Logan, attempting to take him down to a football recruiting visit, and I was thinking about the fact that he's just coming off of this broken collarbone and set to return to the football field, and we were talking about leadership. And I can become very, very passionate about leadership. And one of the things that I told Logan on the drive to meet the coach and to talk about his recruiting there, I said to Logan, Logan, leadership is everything. Whether you're talking about the football field or whether you're talking about the chemistry lab or whether you're talking about anything else in life where leadership is required, that everything that you do in life, especially as a man, a male, requires profound, passionate leadership. And when we were talking about that, I gave him the example of Ronnie Lott, who was in the glory years of the San Francisco 49ers, a defensive back extraordinaire. He's now in the Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Fame. And on a particular football game and crucial series, Ronnie Lott had a severely injured pinky finger. And the coaches and the doctors were telling him that he couldn't go back into the game. And he knew his team needed him. And he knew that because it was, in his mind, such a small injury, such a small issue, that he was begging them to return to the game. And they were looking at that pinky finger and they were telling him it was so mangled that it, requ it required surgery. Down, I think, probably to the second joint. And he knew that that meant he was going to be out of the game. And so he looked at the trainers and they looked at the doctors and he held that finger out and he said, Cut it off! And they did right to the place where he could be cleared to go back in the game. And I said to Logan, that's leadership. That's commitment. That's passion. Now for especially you ladies who think that's barbaric, <laughs> that's ridiculous, that's foolish, in one sense I agree. Because it is just for a game. Now, yes, there are things surrounding that and things behind that and things for which that stands for. But the principles all hold true. It's like any entertainer. It's like any musician. You find 
even in some of these bands, some of these musical groups who have reformed themselves after many years and they go off concertizing and they go all around the world and they spend all kinds of time and all kinds of effort and they're in a different city every night and they're giving their all-out effort and they're playing their music and they're singing their songs and they're doing it night after night and they're doing it month after month and year after year and some of them who never break up are doing it for 30 and 40 years at a time and you say, why do they do that? It's because they're passionate about what they're doing. And you could say to that, as equally as any trivial football illustration, what's the point? The point is, it's what they're passionate about. And if somebody's going to be passionate about a trivial pursuit, about a, a game for a perishable wreath, or somebody's going to be an entertainer who wants to entertain the crowd for 30 or 40 or 50 years and, and do it with all of their heart, with all of their passion, with all of their lives, giving everything they have for that which never will last in eternity. Now what about us? What about us? Are we as passionate as Christians about that for which God has bequeathed to us, given to us, as a legacy left for us, and that's His Word. And do we want, with that same kind of passion and drive and determination, to say to the Lord God Himself, I will study my Bible, I will read and understand the Bible with all of my heart, with all of my being, so much so that if it were to take you, Lord, to cut something out of my life in order for me to be as passionate and committed to understanding your word as is humanly possible, then I would say, Lord, cut it out. Cut it out. I mean, you might still want your pinky. But do you want your pinky, do you want your hand, do you want your arm, do you want your leg more than you want the Word of God in your life so that when the trials of life come, when the circumstances of life are heavy upon you, that you know what the Word of God says so that it might give you direction for your life? You desperately need the wisdom of God for all of the challenges that life brings. You see, for me, those silly illustrations actually might take on greater meaning when you compare it to the diligence of the study of Holy Scripture. In fact, I think by way of analogy and comparison, look at Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs 2. I think if you're talking about Ronnie Lott or you're talking about some faded group that you liked 30 years ago who's made a comeback and spending all of their older years just pumping out all of the tunes that are so familiar to you and they're doing it at breakneck speed with all their heart and passion, it compares to the very kind of thing that I'm suggesting this morning 
with our need to study the Word of God with passion and drive and determination. Look at Proverbs 2.1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Notice all those verbs. Making your ear attentive, inclining your heart. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. Listen to this, verse 4. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That's passion. If you search for her as you would be searching for silver. Frankly, that's exactly with different names and faces and situations and scenarios all of the illustrations we could give about non-Christians in, in this life. That's what they're doing. It may be someone on a football field. It may be someone on a stage. It may be someone else in a different situation with a different pursuit. But it's all a searching, as it were, for silver, for all the fame of this life and the money that comes with it. In fact, look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, which obviously implies in a most strong way finding wisdom, getting understanding, that you're looking for it, that you're searching for it. Verse 14, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Proverbs 4, verse 5, get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. In other words, the beginning of wisdom is to get it, to pursue it, to follow after it hard, passionately, determinedly. And whatever you get. Get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hey, there's no Super Bowl ring that goes on half a pinky that's worth the beautiful crown of knowing that you're going to stand one day before the Lord and He's going to say, Well done, good and faithful slave. You slaved over my holy word so that you are not only blessed in this life, but blessed in the next. I was thinking a lot about that when I came across a book that I think is excellent. It's actually co-authored by a couple of men from Washita Baptist University in their biblical studies area, and it's called Grasping God's Word. Grasping God's Word. It's in its second edition now, 2005. Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes. 
And it is an excellent practical book for the very thing that we're talking about this morning. And that is grasping God's Word. Searching for the gold of God's Word. Mining for the silver of God's Word with all of your passion and with all of your heart. And that's what I want to passionately present to you this morning. That reading a book like this will help you in a greater way grasp the Word of God. Now I presented this as a workshop a couple of weeks ago. Not just for the set and for the sake of biblical counselors, for it surely was that in that context, but it's for all of us because we're all needing to be students of Scripture, passionate about what the Lord wants us to do, not on a football field when we're providing leadership and not on a concert stage when we're providing entertainment, but for the living God as we display our passions and our leadership and our desires before Him as we live out the everyday of our lives. This is a very, very helpful book and I want to encourage you to pick it up. Why? Because it's going to help you gain a greater grasp on God's Word. How so? Well, let me show you. I said to those in that workshop, and I say to you this morning, I express a grave level of concern about how we as Bible interpreters or Bible students are handling the Word of God, or in some cases not handling it at all, not reading it, not studying it. And as I've listened to those in counseling situations and Bible teaching situations and even just interacting with Christians, I've heard often and in these last days that Scripture is being interpreted incorrectly. Now, mainly as evangelicals, we get it right a lot of the times. The problem is we often get the right doctrines from the wrong texts. We often say things that are true, but we're looking to the wrong passages to get those right doctrines. And that's a concern to me because God's Word is meant to be interpreted correctly and precisely so that we get the right doctrines from the right text. So therefore, I want to make a case for a back-to-basics lesson in hermeneutics. That's just a really big word that means the science and art of Bible interpretation. And if I could recommend just one book on the subject, it would be this book by Duval and Hayes. I think it's an excellent book. You may not agree with every jot and tittle of it. Uh, no, no book, of course, by human authors is that which is perfect and inerrant by any means. They, of course, would agree with that. But it is very, very close to being the most helpful book that I've come across as a pastor and just as a Christian to be able to understand and then interpret our Bibles in a grand fashion, a great fashion, an improving fashion, a wonderful fashion. And I've given you that bibliographic information so that you might go out and purchase this book. We cannot overestimate the importance when you first come to Bible study of choosing a good translation. And I want to give you three outline points this morning for how to study your Bibles better. But I want to say in a sort of a pre-way that you need to have a good Bible translation before you start out at all. 
And I think, obviously, there are good translations and there are ones that are less than good translations. And the question, of course, is what is a good translation as over against a quote-unquote bad one? Well, an answer to that question, I think, is found between translation theories. And here are two of them. These are sort of the main translation theories. You have, for instance, first of all, what we could call the formal approach, and secondly, then, the functional approach, sometimes referred to as the formal approach being the word-for-word or essentially literal translation theory, and then under the functional approach, that sometimes is called the thought-for-thought or the dynamic equivalence approach. And I'm going to make a case, and I can't this morning for the sake of time, but I want to make a case that if you are in any capacity of a Bible teacher most certainly, but I would even make a case for you being simply a Bible student in and of yourself and on your own, even if it's just your own reading of the Bible, that you should take that more formal approach to having a translation that is more word for word and essentially literal. And I would say that it seems to me that sometimes the very problem that we're talking about with bad hermeneutics comes from people who have what I would consider inferior translations. And right off the bat, they might have a translation that isn't helpful in and of itself to getting at the root meaning of some of the Scripture that at times is frankly difficult to understand, complex. And that's where I think a more formal approach to Bible translation is the better one. And therefore, getting more of the right doctrines from more of the right texts. Now, the following translations, I believe, fall somewhere in the broad spectrum of the formal or essentially literal translation category. For instance, the King James Version, sometimes known as the Authorized Version. Of course, that which came after... Many, many years, of course, and uh, I think, again, a good translation, the New King James Version. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, put out by a team of Southern Baptists, a very, very good translation. Of course, the New American Standard Bible, which we use as we were going through our Proverbs study. And then the English Standard Version, which I've taught from on Sunday mornings for from on Sunday mornings for several years here. And then also another translation that you can find completely online or you can take a hard copy from, and it's called the Net Bible, a little double entendre there, the New English Translation and also Net for Internet. And that is also a very, very good translation. Those are the ones that I think you ought to be trafficking in as you study your Bible. Now, here's... The first outline point, and it is this, the most important interpretive method that you can use to understand your Bible in a greater way, in a better way, is the proper context, seeking the proper context. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on this one, not so much on numbers two and three in our outline. We're going to spend a lot of time here because it is the most important. Just as realtors are famous for saying that the three most important factors in selling are what? Location, location, location. The most important hermeneutical principle 
of Bible study is context, context, context. And the greatest danger for any student of the Bible, especially preachers and teachers, but all of us, all of us as Bible students, is the failure to recognize the proper context of a passage of Scripture. And that's why we often get into trouble. But then, of course, it begs the question, what do we mean by context? What does that mean? Well, here's what we mean. Before we can even understand the concept of context as an interpretive item, number one in our list, we have to have what we could call pre-understandings or an understanding of our pre-understandings. And what are those? Let me give you about ten of those. Number one, how we were raised and in what way we were first taught biblical passages by others. Or whether we were taught in our youth, for instance, or whether we were taught biblical passages at all. In other words, a pre-understanding that we must have even before we develop the concept of context is a pre-understanding about how we grew up and how we were first taught. That's very, very formative in our lives, isn't it? Number two, how and to what degree we've been unduly influenced by our culture and how this culture colors our view of any given biblical text. Number three, our view of Scripture and its authority. That's huge in any pre-understanding, isn't it? What, how we view Scripture. Do we believe it to be the Word of God? Do we believe it to be inerrant, infallible? Do we believe it to be inspired by God? Number four, our view of the Holy Spirit and His illumination of our understanding of the text. Do I believe that the Holy Spirit's going to give me a right understanding of the Bible? Number five, here's what I started out with this morning, our dedication and desire to study in order to grasp the meaning of the text. How committed are you? Would you say, cut off everything in my life that's going to be extraneous to my need to study and dedicate myself to a knowledge of God through His Word. Number six, our assumed familiarity with the text should be. Text. How much am I already familiar with the Bible? Number seven, our knowledge of biblical history and culture. And number eight, our knowledge and understanding of how language works, especially biblical languages, and we'll get that to that in a moment. Number nine, our calling, our gifts, our abilities, which are given to us by God in both the understanding and in the communication of that text to others. And you say, well, see, that's where this is not as important to me as it is to you. That's not so. It's only important to me on a different level. It should be as important to you as it is to me, the preacher. Number 10, our daily battle with sin which limits or obscures our ability to hear and discern what the text is saying to us and through us to others. Surely we have to acknowledge that. That's a pre-understanding, even before we understand what we mean by context. And I've only given you ten. There are a hundred more. But with that in mind, with all of those pre-understandings already acknowledged, once we acknowledge them as best we can, we're ready to move to some contextual keys to understand God's Word. And this is under the first interpretive method, context. And here it is, contextual key number one, the historical slash cultural context. In other words, 
in order for you to understand the context of any given passage, you need to understand the historical context of that passage or the cultural context of that passage. And here's what Duvall and Hayes suggest on page 100 of their book. Historical, cultural context relates to just about anything outside the text that will help you understand the text itself. And I think here are the two most important ones. Number one, who was the biblical writer? Who was he? What do I know about him? What do I know about his use of language? What do I know about his theology? And secondly, who was the biblical audience? Whom was that writer writing to? Those are the two most important. There are other very, very important things, but I think those are the two most important. And so, again, it begs the question, well, what tools can I use? If you're telling me that I need to understand things outside the text that will help me understand the text itself, what tools can I understand, can I have at my disposal that's going to give me a basis for understanding the history and the culture of a particular context? Well, they help us do Duval and Hayes by listing in their book certain Bible handbooks, Old Testament, New Testament introductions, and surveys, Old Testament and New Testament commentaries. And, of course, either for the sake of time or effort, we often punt immediately to commentaries when we ought to back up and we ought to look at some of these handbooks and some of these introductions and some of these surveys and Old Testament and New Testament histories and Bible atlases and Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias and Bible background commentaries. All of them, by the way, listed in, I think, very helpful ways as some of the most helpful in those categories in this book. And a lot of those are in our church library. Contextual key number two. Not just the historical and the cultural context, but the literary context as well. Duvall and Hayes write on page 120, literary context relates to the particular form a passage takes, what is called the literary genre, and to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that surround the passage you are studying, which they call the surrounding context. That's very, very true. In other words, everything we're reading because of the very fact that we're reading it means it's a document, means that it was written, which means it's a part of literary genre, which means we need to understand the genre. Well, what kinds of literary genre might we find in the Bible? Well, for instance, in the Old Testament, you have narrative. You have law. You have poetry. You have prophecy. You have wisdom. Among others, you have those that I've listed in the New Testament, for instance, you have gospel, history. You have the letter format, like the epistles. You have apocalyptic. And you know there are even sub-genres in the Bible. For instance, parables and riddles and sermons, like, for instance, in the book of Acts. Duval and Hayes write, Genres shape our expectations about how to approach a particular text. The form or genre of the text really is connected to the context of the text. And for this reason, we should take literary genre seriously. And then, and then this important sentence, the very meaning of the Bible is at stake. You know, I think this is one of the strengths of John MacArthur's ministry. 
his ability, as he says, to put my gluteus maximus in the chair until the work is done. To be able to study both the historical and the cultural context of any given text and to be able to study the literary genre of the text itself in order as a preparation to understanding the context of the very passage itself. Very, very important. And there's a third, I think, contextual key that's very, very helpful for us in understanding the overall context of the biblical passage and the biblical world. This is what Duvall and Hayes write on page 132. Words are like pieces of a puzzle. They fit together to form a story or a paragraph in a letter, i.e. the big picture. Until you know the meaning of certain words, you will not be able to grasp the meaning of the whole passage. Not knowing the meaning of certain words in a passage of Scripture can be compared to the frustrating discovery that you don't have all the pieces to your puzzle. Like individual pieces of a puzzle, words bring the larger picture to life. Words are worth studying. What kinds of words are we to look for? Well, look for words, for instance, that are crucial to the passage. You say, well, how do I know if it's crucial or not? Well, look for repeated words. Look for various figures of speech if they're there. Or focus in on words that are seemingly unclear or puzzling or difficult. And this is where we get to concordance word study. Now, this is very, very important. For instance, if you were to have a, 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 a common and maybe even a contemporary concordance, either, for instance, a Strong's concordance or maybe another concordance, like that which has been edited by two men, Goodrick and Kohlenberger, you would have at your disposal the ability to study the words of the Bible, even if you didn't understand the biblical languages. For instance, you see listed there the GK or the S numbering system. S, of course, stands for Strong's, and GK stands for Goodrick. Kohlenberger, and if you have a concordance, concordance like a Strong's concordance, and for instance, if you went to a particular Bible passage and you wanted to, to study a particular puzzling word, and you didn't know that word in its original biblical language, you could still take that particular word, go to the concordance, find that word listed from A to Z, and beside that word is a number, and that's what's called the Strong's number. And then you go and take that number, and you go to the back of that concordance, and there's a dictionary. In biblical language study, they're called lexicons. Lexicons, either a Hebrew lexicon or a Greek lexicon. It just means dictionary. And you go to that dictionary, and you match up not the words, because you don't know them in their original, but the numbers, sort of painting by numbers. And you find the word that fits the number of the word that you're looking for, and it will give you, in English, the definition of that word. The GK number are in some of the later Bible translations how they have connected not a Strong's number but a new numbering system called the GK number. So either one will work. And that's how you can do some good word study from your concordance. There are also important elements to what I call contextual word study. Contextual word study. And what I mean by that is this. You're going to run afoul 
if you simply go to a concordance and find a word, look at the number, match the number with the number in the dictionary, and then see the definition and say, that is the definition of that word. That could run you afoul because it may or may not mean that that particular definition fits the context of the passage you're studying. So you have to be careful. You can't just assume that one dictionary definition of a word fits all of its various contexts in which that word is used, okay? So you have to understand contextual word study. And here's a very, very key principle that they bring out in this book, and that is context determines word meaning. You can't just assume that you know what it means by going to the back of the book. You have to understand it in its context. And here are some common fallacies that we call word study fallacies. For instance, the English only fallacy. Don't base your understanding of a particular English word rather than the Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek word which underlies it. In other words, don't assume that you understand when you understand an English definition of an English word that you've correctly understood the context of that passage and what that word means in that context. That's called the English-only fallacy. It goes, of course, deeper than that. Here's another, the root fallacy. And here's what you need to watch out for. Don't always assume that the meaning of a word is found in its original root or its etymology. You have to be very, very careful with that. This is, a, this is a really, really interesting point that they bring out in the book and that I think all of us need to watch out for because in this context, these particular words, if we only assume that we know exactly what they mean and how to study them, can get us into trouble. For instance, the word independent. See, you have to be careful of that because... That word does not mean by its root, in the pen there is a dent. Right? You have to be very, very careful. And that's what can be very, very disheartening, but you've got to put study in. They even talk about this particular concept in some of their writings in this book. For instance, the word sawhorse. If you thought that the root meaning behind the word sawhorse is that a horse sees, we would know that's wrong, correct? How about butterfly? Is that a fly who somehow has found himself in a tub of butter? You see, you have to, you have to understand that just because a couple of words are put together to form a new word, that the root fallacy doesn't always mean, of course, that the word means the sum of its parts. It may not mean that at all. Here's another, the time frame fallacy. Don't take a current word meaning and read back into it the Bible's world of words. It may not have that meaning attached to it at all. Here's, here's a very common one, the Greek word dunamis. That's, of course, ultimately the word out of which we derive the English word what? Dynamite. But don't fall into the fallacy of reading back into a Pauline context the word dunamis by saying it means dynamite. Because guess what? The English word dynamite was only invented centuries after the Greek word dunamis was invented. So what does dunamis mean? Power. 
It may not mean somebody blowing up something, right? It means power. That's the time frame fallacy. Here's another one, the overload fallacy. Don't take a word which may have multiple meanings depending on the context and assume that you can attach every meaning to it. The word church is loaded with meaning. You can't assume every time that word ecclesia is mentioned that it means everything about which that one word connotes. That's the overload fallacy. Here's another fallacy, the word count fallacy. Don't assume that a word has the same meaning every single time it occurs. Again, the context determines meaning, not how many times a word occurs in each text. And then the word concept fallacy. Don't assume that a certain word contains an entire concept. A concept is bigger than any one word. And selective evidence fallacy. That is, don't assume just by selective study, selective evidence gathering, that you have come to the proper understanding of a text. All right, here's interpreted method number two. I wish we could talk more about context, but we can't. Here's number two. The importance of observing everything you can possibly see from a passage. Everything. This is, this is absolutely crucial. First, context. Second, observation. Everything you can see. Everything. Which means what? You read and read and read and read and read and read and read. And you look and look and look and look and you observe and observe and observe. Listen to the illustration that they give in this book. It's called The Student, the Fish, and Agassiz from Jean-Louis Rodolphe Agassiz, who was born in 1807, died in 1873, was a famous scientist of the 19th century who taught for many years at Harvard. Listen to a student's rendition of his experience with the good professor. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz and told him I had enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I proposed to devote myself specifically to insects. When do you wish to begin, he asked. Now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, said he, and look at it. We call it a hemulon. By and by I will ask what you have seen. With that he left me. In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish, and started to search for the professor, who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dried all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed. An hour Another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. 
I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at a three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. So with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour, I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassi had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation, again looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted or prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That is right, said he. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I'm glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, Well, what is it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me, fringed gill arches, fleshly lips, lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin, and the forked tail. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more, and then with an air of disappointment, you have not looked very carefully. Why, he continued more earnestly, you haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again, look again. And he left me to my misery. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish? But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one thing, new thing after another until I saw just how the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but see how little I saw before. Oh, that is next best, said he earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of the fish all night... Studying without the object before me what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without renewing my, reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the next day. The cordial greeting from, from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I ask, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said, and left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That is good, that is good, he repeated, but that is not all. Go on. And for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. 
The student said as he closed, This was the best entomological lesson I ever had. A lesson whose influence has extended to the details of every subsequent study. A legacy the professor has left to me as he left it to many others of inestimable value which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. Look at your Bibles. Study them. What are we doing in this life if we're not doing that? Where's our time? Where's our energy? Where's our effort? Where's our leadership? Cut it out! If it's not the diligent reading and understanding of the vast riches of the Word of God. Look for any general statements that you might find. Any specific details. Any questions. Any answers. Look for any dialogue. Look for any purpose statements. Look for any means by which something is accomplished. Look at any conditional clauses. Look at the action or the roles of people in the text. Look at the action or the roles of God in the text. Look at any emotional terms like aha or behold or look or brother. Look for tones. Look for repetition of words. Look for contrasts. Look for comparisons. Look for lists. Look for any cause and effect. Look for figures of speech. Look for conjunctions. And by all means, look for the verbs. Usually, that'll be the controlling idea of the passage. Look for pronouns. Look for connections between paragraphs and episodes. Look for story shifts. Look for major breaks. Look for some kind of pivot. Look for interchange that is contrasting or comparing two different stories in order to show either major or minor similarities or dissimilarities. Look, look, look. Look for chiasm. Chiasm is chiastic structure, something that has an A, B, C, C, B, A with maybe something in the middle as a pivot. That's important. Only then, only then, after looking, 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 observing, 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 are you ready to apply? And that's our third interpretive method, applying, compelling application. Before you've done any application of the biblical text, and I would even venture to say something like this, if you haven't studied a a passage in its context, and if you haven't observed everything that you can, you're probably not applying it accurately. Duval and Hayes say this, four steps in the process of applying the text of Scripture. Number one, grasp the text by summarizing the original situation and the meaning of the text for the original biblical audience. That's, that's context again, context. That's observation. And then secondly, determine the differences between the biblical situation and your own or somebody you're helping, somebody you're teaching. Thirdly, list any of the theological principles that are communicated by the passage. And then fourthly, observe how the principles in the text were applied in the original situation and then seek to discover any parallels in our own contemporary context and then make applications to today by being very concrete, very, very specific. I can't tell you how helpful this book can be for you. And yet some of you are going to say, a 462-page book? Are you kidding? I can't do it. I'll fall asleep before I get past page 10. Yeah, that may be true. That may be true. This is a help for you. 
Here's a help for you. Here's a workbook that goes along with the book. (laughs) It'll help you not fall asleep at page 10. Very, very helpful. Gives you exercises to go through. It will help you in a major regard to understanding how you can study your Bible in a greater way. Gives you assignments. Gives you homework. You say, "Ah, you haven't convinced me. No, it's, it's just, just, just too, too hard. Well, they've thought about that. They've thought about that. In fact, here it is. They've condensed it down to a 160-page book. See, you thought you were off, weren't you? You thought you had gotten off, but here it is, a 160-page book. And look, I get no royalties for this, folks. I don't have any connection with Washita Baptist University. I don't know these fellows only by their writings, but it's helpful. And you can read a 160-page book. You surely can. This was done in 2008. You can read this 160-page book. It's so thin, so readable. You can do it at your lunch hour. You can do it over the next several weeks on your lunch hour, something like that. You say, no, still haven't sold me. Oh, is that right? Well, they've even put it on a laminated sheet right here. (laughs) Look at that. The distillation of the entire book is on a laminated sheet. In fact, it says, Zondervan, get an A study guides. You want to get an A in life, in the study of God's Word? You could do this. Some of you are saying, I'm so busy, I can't do anything but that. That's okay. That's all right. It'll it'll whet your appetite for more. Praise God for eyes and ears and for the will to learn and live. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank You. Thank You for what You've given to us, ears to hear, eyes to see, and a will to obey. We want to search Your Word like the silver of this world that perishes so that we may gain an imperishable prize that we will stand before you as good students who have learned that there is a great God we serve. You've given us this book. And if there are so many trivial examples of those who have given up limbs for the sake of a perishable crown. And for those who have given up their entire careers for the sake of momentary applause. May we, Father, be those who will stand before you one day to receive the imperishable unfading crown of glory and it will come to us as we study and learn about you in the here and now. May we be students of your book and better Bible interpreters as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.